Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Okay, so... I think this is the most excited I've been for a very long while. I am so, so thrilled to be introducing you today to Cole Bailey. Cole is actually a retired landscape gardener and an avid bushwalker. And back in the day, he used to absolutely love to canoe and was even the Australian 50-mile walk race record holder. So he's a pretty good athlete, really, in his own right. It was in early 1967 that he was paddling in his canoe on the Coorong Sanctuary area in South Australia when he chanced upon a Tasmanian tiger. So 1967 is well after the supposed extinction of the Tasmanian tiger in the 1930s. But Cole has become the go-to person for anyone who believes that they have seen or heard a Tasmanian tiger And he's really made it his life calling to prove to the world that this incredible animal can still exist here in Tasmania. In this podcast, we delve deep into sightings of the Tasmanian tiger here in Tasmania, including Cole's own sightings in 1993 and 1996. His books, Tiger Tales and The Shadow of the Thylacine, have been a raging success and we actually now sell them here at Find Your Feet in our retail store in Hobart. Cole lives in Tasmania and sadly he is not a very well man anymore. It was quite an honour to be given one hour of his time to sit and pick his brains on how and where the Tasmanian tiger still exists. Look, I was a bit of a sceptic before I read his books. I am an avid believer now that I have read this book and I have had this chat with Cole Bailey. Our audio was a little bit interrupted because we needed to uh, give Cole time to catch his breath during the podcast but I know that you are going to be engrossed in this no matter what and are going to come away desperate to know that the Tasmanian tigers still exist and desperate to see one with your own eyes. So let's get right into it. Hunting for the Tasmanian thylacine with Cole Bailey. Thank you for making the drive down to Hobart to visit me. My pleasure. Yeah, this is really exciting. I I must say I potentially have been bragging to a few people in the store as they pick up your book and browse through it that I was planning to podcast you and that we had you lined up. Um, There's not many occasions where... I can sit in one place for a prolonged period of time. But when I came across your book on a holiday Mm. up at Coles Bay, um, I have to admit that eight hours later I was still curled up on the couch. So (laughs) it really, for those of you who haven't read Coles' books, um, we'll put some links to them on the podcast um, pages. But I can absolutely vouch it's a phenomenal read and 
it will, I don't know, I'm an avid believer now that the thylacine still exists. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I'm really interested to know, just at the outset, like, you talk a lot about your own experiences in the book as well as other people's sightings. You've Mm. kind of become, to some degree, the the go-to person if you believe you have seen it or Mm. um, had an experience with a thylacine. Mm. How many times have you personally feel that you may have come into contact or been in the same region as the thylacine? Well, definitely in 1995 and perhaps in 1997 along the Coorong Lagoon mm-hmm. in South Australia. South Australia. I I didn't know what it was, but investigations into what it could have been uh, led me to the Tasmanian tiger. Now, I knew very little to then about it. Um, there were other people seeing the same sort of animal as being roundly called a Tasmanian tiger in the mm-hmm. Adelaide Advertiser. And uh, that may be, I don't know, but what it did was start me on this caper, searching for the tiger and proving to the world it still exists. But 95 is definite. And up till then, I was in two minds. I thought, it could exist. It may not exist. And I was like so many others. I wasn't sure. I was hoping. Mm. Uh, but then I was led into that area by an old bushman who said they definitely were in there. Uh, and when I seen it with my own eyes, I knew, but for 17 years, I didn't tell a soul, not even my wife. And she wasn't very happy when she found out when I was starting to write the book. She said, I thought we had no secrets. And I said, darling, I said, better a love affair with the Tasmanian tiger than another woman. <laughs> <laughs> and so I told no one to protect the animal because I was so fearful of what could happen if people got in there and there were hunters that would shoot them on sight. Yeah. They've told me that, and, and Nick Mooney and I have both had this experience of being told by people that they will shoot them if they see them. Yeah. And so I wanted to protect the animal. So the second time in 95 was without doubt, no doubt in my mind, and that woke me up to the fact that they were there. And people say, how can you be so sure? How can you talk like you do and say, you know, there's no doubts that they're there? I said, because I know. I've seen I've seen this type. I know they're there. Yeah. And so, I mean, how much more definite could you be than that? I mean, I've seen the thing and uh, uh, many people see an animal and they think it's a Tasmanian tiger, but they're not sure. And a lot of these people don't know very much about them at all. And it could be a dog, it could be and on the mainland, of course, a fox, <laughs> mangy mm. foxes. They see mangy foxes over in South Australia at the moment. And there's a certain fellow over there that capitalises on this and says, oh, yes, Tasmanian tigers, but they're not at all. I've yeah. seen the footage and they're not. So, uh, no, that's once, but I've smelt them. they got a definite odour and I've smelt them several times and I've, I've heard them calling in the bush um, three or four occasions. Okay. Mm. I'm really, um, you know, I hear what you say about how you kept all of this a secret even from your wife for a mm. prolonged period of time because you mentioned that a few times in the book. You were worried that by releasing your knowledge and the belief that you knew that they still existed here, mm. that you were endangering the species itself. Mm. What changed then? Like, why? How did the book come about then? If, yeah. Well, I really wanted to wait until I'd proven to the world that the tiger existed. But time was running out. I was getting older and older, and less able to get out into the bush where I wanted to go. And I thought, well. Maybe it's time to write the book. And I left it till the very last moment. My agent said, you know, you've got to liven this thing up. And I said, I can liven it up. I said, I don't really want to yet. And he kept at me and at me. And he said, 
because I'd had him for the first book, Tiger Tales, back in uh, 2001. Mm. And uh, and he, he knew where I stood and, and uh, he had faith in me and he said, look, if you could liven this book up. And I said, yeah, I can liven it up, but I said, I've resisted this. So eventually I let it go. And I, even then I didn't really want to. But uh, so I told the full story and he said, now this is what we are after, this is what we want. Yeah. And we showed it to the, the publishers and they said, oh, we'll jump on this. Yeah, straight but away. But you weren't writing this book to become famous no, or No, 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 to... I just wanted to tell my story. Yeah, to tell If I story. wanted to become famous, I could run to the papers with my sighting and not, not wouldn't have believed it. But I, I, didn't, I, I don't like taking this to the newspapers. The media are very dangerous because yeah. they sensationalise it. And in this instance, they have done on a number of occasions. And people have gone in there with guns and tried to find it and shoot it. Yeah. And I didn't want that to happen. The thylacine is a bit of a hot topic at the moment. Mm. Um, it's been reported in the media that there's been sightings in northern Queensland mm. and in South Australia. But we're talking about the Tasmanian tiger. So I, mm. I guess I have a couple of questions. One is... Are we talking about the same species? Is this? Uh, is there a possibility that they're on the mainland as well? Or, yeah, can you can you describe a little bit more about the Tasmanian tiger and where you believe it still exists? Well, basically, it is the same animal. Basically, the Queensland situation is slightly different. Now, there's supposed to be an animal up there that is a variation of our tiger. Some have said the stripes go underneath, not over the back. Yeah, right. Uh, but there, there's. A lot of contention up there as to, you know, what sort of an animal it actually is. But I, I doubt if one was found in Queensland that it would be like our tiger. It would be different. But there's no record of any animal, no no visual proof or any mm. evidence is there that there is a, a tiger up in... Mm. Up in the Queensland area, I mean, we know for for a fact that pre-1937 when the tiger became extinct mm. that, you know, tigers did exist in Tasmania. We have all the evidence of that. But mm. Queensland, different mm. situation? Um, well, they did. They did exist in Queensland many, many thousands of years ago. Right. As my friend Mike Archer has proven the Riversley uh, deposits and that there's been instances of them being found in every state, but basically in, in Australia. Okay. So they roamed in entire Australia. But this is millions of years ago, or thousands, yeah, right. <laughs> many thousands of years ago. And uh, But now, today, in this age, I think if they, they would be found anywhere on the mainland, it would be in Western Australia. Western Australia? vast areas there that really are still to this day basically undiscovered, huh. you know, and, and um, they found that one on the Nullador back in the mid-60s, a desiccated specimen, they called it, and the fur and the teeth and the eyes were all there and this animal at the bottom of the sinkhole. And it looked like it had just dropped down there 12 months before. Yeah. And yet they were saying it's 3,000-something years old. Yeah. So they definitely were on the mainland. But in this day and age, I don't know. As I say, in the one on the on the on the Coorong in South Australia, I'm not sure to this day what it was. It's something strange, but if nothing, that started me off on this. this yeah, because the Coorong sighting was your first ever experience confronting mm. a tiger, and you talked quite at quite length in your book about that sighting. Um, you were just out recreating in the area and suddenly mm. saw an animal that you couldn't really mm. um, describe. I was a recreational canoeist. Yeah. And and I was looking for emu that morning. <laughs> Instead, I seen what I thought might have been a... I didn't know what it was. And I went to the local garage and, and told him on the way home. And a friend of mine had a, a dairy along the Coorong, used to stay there. And, and he, he wasn't home when I got back with the canoe. So I went 
packed it up and went back through Meningi and I told the local tourism bloke, he said, oh, you wouldn't be the first one to see that. He said, there's been plenty in here saying they've seen that sort of animal. He said, there's a fellow up the road, and as I say in the book, go, go and have a talk to him. So I did. And it's, it all ended up, he was seeing the same animal that I thought I'd seen. And the advertiser in Adelaide, the paper in Adelaide, was calling it a Tasmanian tiger. So the general belief that it was there, and there were dozens and dozens of sightings. So I started hunting some of them down and, and interviewing them. And uh, it all built up, and, and I was building up quite a dossier. And then when I got to Tasmania, of course, uh, I went to see a bloke called Elias Churchill, who was on record as hunting the last tiger, capturing, capturing the last tiger, the last one in the Hobart Zoo that died in 1936. Right. And he opened my eyes to a lot of things. And then I started hunting down the old trappers and bushmen. In and Tasmania? That, yes, yes, mainly in Tasmania. A few on the mainland, but um, mainly in Tasmania. And I was flying back and forwards and it's driving me silly. So eventually come over here to, to live. So before all this came about, we, had you, were you working in any particular industry? Like what, what, who, who was Cole before that first sighting? Mm, it's just a land, humble landscape gardener. Yeah, really, <laughs> in Adelaide. And I was an athlete, of course, and, 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 and that was my, my main love, athletics. But then uh, I was a landscape gardener, and as I, as I got older, uh, I liked the canoe, canoeing and mm. stuff. And so, you know, it, you, you take on different things as you get older. And, uh, but um, this, when this thing came along, this was the... The thing that captured my imagination. Yeah, because I was going to ask you was what then drove you to, I guess, um, you know, become someone who wanted to prove to some degree that the thylacine still existed. Was that what was driving you then, or was it curiosity? Was it love of Tasmania? Was it a bit of everything? Well, I was getting kicked from pillar to post by certain people in the scientific community that I was a mm, nutcase. I have no doubt. And I formed a good friendship with Eric Gola. He was recognised world authority on it and you know that. And Eric was getting Is kicked around. Is he the around. one who lives in Europe? There's like a no, Heinz Meyer Sorry. was in Europe. Okay. Eric was at the university here, here in Hobart. In Hobart. Okay. And um, he was recognised as the world authority on it. And he was getting kicked from pillar to post by the scientific community and saying, you know, it's, it's not there. How do they know it's not there? They can't prove no more than we can prove it is there. Yeah. And short of a dead or alive specimen, we're not going to be able to prove it one way or the other because photographs will never prove this. You've got to get a freshly dead specimen or a live specimen. And as the Parks and Wildlife, he says, don't touch it, leave it alone. <laughs> if you find a dead one even, don't touch it. But I tell you what, if I do, it'll be home with a deep freeze. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, we'd formed a pact, Eric and I, what we were going to do if we found a dead one. Uh, a live one's a different matter. You you just let it go. As I did in 95 in the World Valley, I let it go. I wouldn't dare contain it in any way because the trappers told me that if you uh, got this animal excited, it would drop dead on you. It was a very ex- uh, emotional sort of animal. And when they found them in traps... The moment they approached the thing and shiver and put on a tantrum and drop dead. So you wow. had to be very careful with them. And this is what worries me even today. If they find a live one, how are they going to contain it? Yeah. They don't know. And there's so much about this animal we don't know. 
Okay, I'm really interested to dig into your stories more, um, especially your own experiences with the Tasmanian tiger. But mm. I think maybe to provide some context for those of um, our audience who haven't read the book yet and have the same understanding of the, the thylacine, mm. can you um, describe how prolific they were here in Tasmania, um, I guess, in the early 1900s? Oh, there were many around as the bounty system proved. Uh, that was brought in in 1888, and by 1900 there was several thousand have been several uh, thousand and three. There was 2,184, I think, officially, but we don't know that. But I'd say nearer to 3,000 because many were taken on private bounties that wow. didn't register, and they were paying up to five pound per pelt, which was a lot of money when a shepherd's wage was basically ten bob a week, uh, yeah. ten shillings a week, and so there was big money in this, and the Pierce. Uh, family at uh, Derwent Bridge and, uh, uh, well, Derwent Clarence River, they trapped something like 70-something thylacines, and that was a lot of money, and yeah. they were just a, a farming family. So there were, there were money to be made, but I don't think anyone really went out just to trap thylacines. They were trappers generally, and the thylacine was, a, was an added bonus. was a bonus, yes. yeah. So, and that happened with Churchill. He trapped the last one. He didn't go out specifically to trap the thylacine. But it bumbled into one of his traps and that's how he got he got eight that way. Yes. Right. Mm. And the bounty was put in place because there was a problem with the early settlers and their mm. animal and livestock being mm. supposedly killed by the thylacine. Yep. But in your book you talked about concerns that this was actually also to do with the dogs that they brought with them. Mm. Is that correct? Yeah, the feral feral dogs, dogs that went feral, they, they bought uh, dogs. Uh, domestic dogs, and uh, some, a lot of them went feral. And they were adopted by the Aborigines that used them in their hunting. And when they, as they got wiped out progressively, the dogs became feral, wild, you know, just took off. And great packs of them formed, and, and they did a lot of damage to the sheep, sheep much more than the tiger. But there's no doubt that the tiger killed sheep. Mm. And we've got, now we've got uh, pe people like Bob Paddle who wrote... The last Tasmanian tiger, saying he could only find six instances of sheep being killed by tigers, which is absolutely ridiculous and nonsense. Because look, I've got hundreds upon hundreds of accounts of tigers killing sheep, and I've I've been told by actual far, old farmers and, and trappers that you know they definitely did. They definitely were a pest animal, and uh, there's only one way to stop them: wipe them out, eliminate them. And so um, that's basically what happened. But today, of course, people are still saying, Parks and Wildlife, look, a tiger's killing me sheep. It's incredible in this day and age. They're still saying it. Wow. And that's nonsense, of course. That's, that's absolute nonsense today. Right. But back in those days, it really did happen. They really did kill sheep. And are there still instances of these feral dogs? I mean, dogs will breed. Um, there's still instances of the feral dogs. Look, I've only heard of one in the last 20 years, and that was in the walls of Jerusalem National Park, and that was about... Oh, five or six years ago, there were packs, a pack of wild dogs up there mm -hmm. creating problems. But I'm on, a, on another book now, The Mystery of the, of the Thylacine, and in that I want to explain a lot of this away. Right, so yeah. So there, there's quite a story there. Yeah. Mm. So when we talk about, like, over 3,000 animals potentially being killed or thylacine potentially being killed when mm. the bounty was in place... Where was the hunting literally statewide? Did did these kind of um, trappers go right deep into the southwest wilderness? For no, example? they didn't because there were there were no 
uh, towns there where you could claim the bounty on. It was a, a wilderness from from uh, of, uh, down the Tasman Peninsula uh, and around the bottom there, very few people, if anyone, lived. Mm. And down the west coast, basically no one lived. There was only Strawn and Queenstown and there was a few little tiny settlements along the coast, but there were nowhere, there was nowhere for a trapper to put his, his catch. So huh, people didn't bother to go in there. They were in there all right. They're still there today. So does that help fuel your suspicions about where the Tasmanian tiger could potentially still exist in Tasmania? Oh, yes, I know where it still exists. I can't say it's there, but I can say in a, in a general area, it's there. All right. It well, is, definitely. And we're going to get to that. I'm really, I'm really excited to dig more into that. But I guess what I'm also um, coming to is this concept that there's a lot of very wild country in Tasmania that it sounds like trappers didn't enter and also modern-day tourism isn't entering, forestry isn't entering. It's just locked up in protected wilderness now. Mm. Um, mm. What do you um, believe is the ideal habitat for the Tasmanian tiger? Can it, yeah, can it still exist in these very wild areas as well? Look, if you want to see typical habitat, uh, good habitat, go up to Derwent Bridge and look around Derwent Bridge because that's ideal thylacine back into the walls of Jerusalem. But the tiger just can't say today, I'm going to live there because he'd be knocked off very quickly. So he's got to go back, back, back to where he, feel, where he feels safe. But there has to be game in these areas. No matter where it is, there has to be game, hunting game. And I've found parts in the, along the west coast, there are, there are plenty of game and there are button grass plains where the tiger could uh, could live there, and and so these are the areas that it's gone back into now to get out of the way to get away from humanity because yeah. it was being killed off. Because the just for our listeners, the Derwent Bridge is the southern end of the um, Overland Track, very famous walking track here mm. in Tasmania. And then the walls of Jerusalem is becoming an incredibly popular area for especially, mm. like, families and people entering the hiking market because it's an easy three-night or mm. even one-night, but up to mm. three-night overnight walk. But I've always thought that as well, that um, in that area, sort of south of the walls of Jerusalem right through until Lake St. Clair and the end of the Overland Track, mm. that Derwent Bridge area, mm. it's a lot of lake country, a lot of button grass lakes, mm. um, Easy, I guess, easy feeding for wallabies, which is my understanding that the tiger mm. is one of their preferred um, food sources. Is that correct? Well, it's not thick bush. Yeah. And the tiger uh, will run a, run its prey down, and it can't run its prey down in thick bush. But uh, the bush is fairly open there, and sparse, and it can run, it can run and hunt there in those areas. And it's got to be prey for it to hunt, of course, and there there are plenty of wallabies in those areas when you get in and have a look around. Yeah. But what sort of range does one tiger require to live on? Because if we were talking 3,000 that we know of that mm. were trapped in the island of Tasmania, that you know that, that's actually quite a large number considering our island is not particularly enormous. It is when you get out and walk around it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually... Uh, the, the, the tiger wasn't trapped in the, in the one area. There are many areas, and mainly along the east coast, down through the central corridor and the northwest, mm-hmm. but very few on the west coast because people just go in there. Didn't go in there. So 
when they first arrived here, the central corridor from Launceston to Hobart was like it, much like it is today, although a lot of it's been cleared, but it was sparsely uh, tree country, and that was ideal. And there were more tigers there than anywhere else. But they spread out from there as they started to make inroads into their population. And they had a... This, this animal was supposed to be a, a deal of a thing, but it doesn't present itself as a deal to me. It's got intelligence to get away from humans, and that's mm. what it had to do, and it's done it. Mm. And the only reason it survived today is because it had the intelligence to get out of the way and to to form its own um, range in different uh, localities. And this range could exist up to 53 kilometres. But this is dependent on uh, the territory, the game uh, and, and the land itself. This all depends on the, the nature of the, the country that it's living in. 53 kilometres is quite a specific number. How did you arise at 53? 50 kilometres. No, 50 kilometres. 50 kilometres, 50 kilometres. sorry, 50 kilometres, yeah. right. Some have even said 80. Wow. But I'd say 50 is a pretty good title. And you've um, been establishing just through, I guess, your own experiences mm. with sightings and um, coming encounters with the Tasmania Tiger, plus also other people's sightings that... They work in a in a corridor fashion as mm. they hunt. Is that mm. correct? Yeah. And can you explain that a little bit more for us then? Well, it doesn't hunt willy nilly over a, 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 that vast area, but it's got definite paths that it traverses. Uh, that it'll find. He knows where the game are, and it'll form a what I call a corridor to get from one point to the other. And it's not a narrow corridor, a hundred hundred yards wide. It could be a kilometre wide. Yeah. But it's a general path and a direction through the, the territory. It doesn't go from, you know, all over the place. So it, and it'll work its way around there in a period of oh, five or six weeks and it'll come back again through that area. And then and this is how uh, I've worked my logic that if you want to uh, get near a tiger, you have to find where it's been through and be back there, you know, um, within a month or six yeah, weeks. Yeah, right, OK. And, and I, I smelt one by following this. Uh, I got near enough to smell the thing and, uh, in the, uh, the Sawback Range out from Maddensfield. OK, so mm. down in the southwest area mm. again. Mm. So the, um, the, the corridor theory, which sounds completely justified to me, so it's generally following areas where the tiger can move more easily in the terrain, so say like button grass plains and open, mm. more open vegetation mm. strips. Where the game is, yeah. And then it basically roams every five to six weeks around a, like a set corridor because yeah. it disturbs the animals as yeah. it moves through the first time. Is that correct? Well, they get disturbed if they've seen a tiger, yes. Yeah. But it knows where the game uh, goes, the, the trail the game uses, and that's where it bases its... Corridor on. Right. So, um, uh, but uh, there are summer and, and, and winter ideas here because in the in the colder weather, the game moves down from the higher country and it, when the warmer weather comes, it moves back up. Yeah. So it will be, the tiger would be conversant with this and it would adapt its, its range accordingly. Yeah. That's what I believe anyway. So, and what sort of... Um Habitat does the tiger actually sort of reside in, say, in bad weather situations or when it's sleeping? Mm. Um, you talked a lot about like caves and hollow logs and things in the book. Mm. 
so can you describe a little bit more about the setting in which that... Well, it hides up during the day in, in natural hides. And this could be a cave, of course, or a rock overhang. It could be a bank of man ferns. Mm-hmm. It could be a hollow log. I found many places that it could hide up. So it wants to get away during the day and that's when it sleeps it off. And then at, at dusk, between dusk and dawn are the times that it emerges and, and hunts. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think probably the best time if you want to really find a tiger is to be around at dawn when it comes back from the hunt. Mm-hmm. And that's when I seen the tiger in 95. It was yeah. coming back from its hunt. Can we talk about that time? Can you take us back to then? Um, what what was the what was the day like? Where were you? Can you set the scene for us a little bit? Well, I was told of a, a certain section of the World Valley, alongside a river called the Snake River, uh, which is way out under Mount Anne, and there were no logging trails there. They logged the other side of the World River. Now, the World River runs from under Mount Mueller and it runs through to the Huon. Mm-hmm. and it runs through some of the most inaccessible country you can ever imagine. And this old fellow, Bert Brooks, he told me that he knew there were tigers back in there, and that was in 93, and so for the next two years I tried to get back in and the bush beat me. Um, and I went through from the uh, under Mount Mueller and followed the world back, and uh, the world goes through a lot of different types of forests and some of it's almost impenetrable. So there were various trails that um, run from, ran from the, pi- the um, pylon, the uh, electricity mm-hmm. uh, line that goes through alongside uh, Mueller Road uh, that runs from uh, the Sticks Road and it runs through back to Clear Hill Road, runs through the bush there. And I followed these and tried to get through that way and wherever I went, I was beaten back by the bush. So by and, cutting grass and... Oh, there's everything in there. Everything. The wildest stuff you can imagine is there. And and uh, horizontal. Uh, it's probably one of the worst things you can strike. Mm. And every time I got to the river on the northern side, uh, it was flooded. I couldn't cross it but the, to the other side. So eventually, in 90, early 95, I worked out a plan to go down the, the Clear Hill Road. And I burned stuff from... The South Coast Road, the or, or the um, Gordon River Road, uh, and I went on back under Mount Anne, and I walked through to the World River and followed it through to the Snake, and it took a couple of days. And it's pretty rough country through there, but eventually, I, and I, I wondered why no one else had been there before. Then I could see why. It just was, you know, that sort of country you you wouldn't bother about. And a lot of it floods when there's a lot of rain. It floods. There are plains there that flood. There's only one, two rivers through there, but there are a lot of little streams and the whole place floods and it snows. You get snow a foot deep through there. Mm. And so I I struck in an early march and I was lucky to get through, get in there. And I camped alongside the Snake River this night and during the early hours of the following morning, I heard these high-pitched ships like a terrier dogs up, up ahead in the button grass plains up ahead and mm. I thought well what are dogs doing out here and it all came back with the old bushes that told me they sound like a high pitched ship like a, a fox terrier dog and I heard these yips coming and I wondered what it was and <clears throat> I wasn't sure but the next morning I packed up it just on daybreak and I got my pack all packed up <coughs> I have to see you right. <coughs> 
talking too much. <laughs> I'll tell you why after. Um, and and so everything was packed up on my pack, my camper, everything was there. And I thought, well, I'll have a quiet look around, as I usually do, before, before I break camp, and I walked around. Uh, <coughs> I was standing there quietly, and out of the ferns, this animal came out and shot straight back in and seen me, apparently. You'll have to cut it a bit. Yeah. <coughs> um, so I packed up, and this... Everything was ready to go. This dog shot out of the, the ferns and, well, I thought it was a brown cattle dog and shot straight back in again. And I was only maybe 10, 12 feet from it. wasn't very far. And when it went into the ferns, I walked to the edge of the ferns where it had gone in and called it up. Hey, boy, come and give us a pat. <coughs> I thought it was a dog. And if it had been a dog, I would have taken it home with me because wallaby hunters lose their dogs. I'm sorry, you're going to have to stop again. <coughs> And when it went into the ferns, I followed it in, and uh, maybe for 20 or 30 yards, and, and I could see the ferns moving ahead of me, and I knew that it was keeping away from me, and I stopped and called it up again. And it went, went on to, it moved onto a, a wombat trail, it was semi-cleared, and I could see it more clearly, and, and then so, suddenly it stopped, and it half turned and glared back at me, and that's when I, my eyes ran down its back and I seen the stripes and the tail, and the penny dropped and, and I went into shock because once I realised what it was, there was no doubting what it was, that's when the penny dropped and I, I just uh, went into basically into shock. I couldn't move. I just My feet felt glued to the... It's a funny feeling when you, you can't move your legs, you feel mm. glued to the spot. And this thing stood there eyeing me off. And I could see these great big black featureless eyes and... <laughs> And I thought, oh, what's it going to do? Anyway, then it started to, to backtrack and it turned right around and faced me head on. And that's, I had no doubts of then what it was. And, and it gave a big hiss and I thought, hello, it's going to have a go at me. And this all happened over a 20, 30 second time frame, I suppose. And it wasn't any any further than probably, well, 20 feet away from me. It was, it was near enough to get a good look at. And... Uh, <coughs> I thought, well, what's going to happen here? Because I was in no condition to do anything. I just stood there and, and looked at it and it glared at me. And then it started to do its backtrack again and it backed off and went into the ferns and I lost sight of it and I could see it moving around, moving away, and I thought I'll, I'll follow it. So I went back to my pack and I thought, now what am I going to do? If I, if I catch up with it, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I don't really want to catch it. I've seen it, perhaps that's enough. And so I sat down at a really strong cup of coffee to steady my nerves because I was shaking like a leaf. Anyway, when I'd finished that, I thought, well, maybe I'll see where it went. But, of course, when when I went to see where it went, it could have gone anywhere, a dozen directions, and I thought, well, it's a waste of time. And that's when I started to take account of the situation. I'd seen it. I was no doubt what it was. What was I going to do about it? And during the long walk home, I... Many things went through my mind and that's when I formed this pact to tell no one, to keep it to myself. Uh, I was scared what might happen if the wrong people found out and got in there. And the thing I didn't tell my wife is she could have let it slip to someone, you know. It's not that she probably would, but you never know. Uh, mm. It's just one of those things that I wanted to keep to myself. Now, I, I found other people in exactly the same position who, who say they've seen them but they, they didn't want to tell anyone at the time. And maybe mm. five years later, they tell me. 
And so it does happen. The same has happened to me. How, um, <clears throat> how have you become that sort of go-to person? Do you think um, it's through writing of the books or that it's in your nature that you're a very approachable person? Because how many sightings have you had reported to you from other outside sources other than your own? <laughs> oh, I haven't counted them up, but they Probably hundreds wow. <laughs> over the years. So this is going over 50 years. Yeah. And I've had a lot, of, a lot of sightings. And uh, some of them I, I wouldn't believe. Some of them I wouldn't believe. Have the sighting numbers increased recently and have, no. have you noticed any changes since you released your book? Oh, it's dropped off. Not so much since I released the book. That was only a few years ago. But in the last 20 years they've dropped away. You know, the, I used to get maybe 30, 40 a year back in the 80s, 90s, but now they've dropped away and I might get five or six. But what I am getting are fairly good ones and most of the good ones come from the road between Dermot Bridge and Queenstown mm. along that stretch of road and that's where the good ones come You mentioned one particular one in your book where mm. um, someone was driving, was at dawn I think, mm. and a tiger crossed the road in front of him mm. and he stopped Mm. But the tiger just disappeared down into the yeah into the morass into the morass. below yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I actually <clears throat> personally believe that my partner and I saw a tiger around the Mole Creek area. We were driving mm. at midnight um, mm. up into the start of the walls of Jerusalem Trail, mm. Mm. and um, we'd left work very late after work and thought that we would do that drive at night mm. and we're going very slowly because obviously there's a lot of animals on the road in that area and this animal, again, long, dog-like but wasn't running like a dog or moving like a dog crossed in front of the car and this is mm. before I read your book, mm. um, way before, and we both sort of looked at one another and was like, did you see that? You know, what was that? And mm. I think the more that I... Um, since we started stocking the book in our store because I believe it's something I want more and more people to read. Mm. And the more times that I point out about your book, the more people kind of open up to me and go, oh, yeah, you know, we believe we've seen one and, mm. you know, my friend saw one. And the other day I had a copy of the book right on the counter mm. and I had a little note on it saying, you know, you've got to read this. It's a great gift as well um, for anyone that you know who loves Tasmania. And... <laughs> This woman said to me as she was doing her payment at the checkout, she said, oh, my friend's seen one. And I said, oh, really? You know, where where did she mm. see it? Mm. And she said, oh, I actually can't tell you. Um, it's with lawyers at the moment. Mm. So obviously um, this oh, friend... I think I know the one you mean. <laughs> they, they, they took one on a remote camera, is that the one? Potentially. Down, she couldn't tell me anything. Down in the Florentine. Yeah, I right. I think I know the one. Do you <laughs> could be and legitimate, possibly. What's that? Do you believe that it could be a legitimate? I've seen this bit of footage. Yeah, right. It, I think it's the one you're talking, about. and I think it was a big tiger coil. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, but um, anyway, if that's the one I'm thinking of, uh, the fellow is supposed to have sent it to England for a verdict from an expert. Now, look, let's get one thing, if I may, at this mm. stage. <clears throat> there are no experts when it comes to the Tasmanian tiger. Now, I think you'd have to agree that an expert on anything is someone who knows everything there is to know about the subject. Yeah. 
no holds barred. And this animal, there is so much that we don't know about it. We can assume or guess and that. Even Eric Eiler said there was so much that he didn't know about it and he was the world expert, supposedly mm. the world expert. When people call me an expert, I cringe because I'm not an expert. There are no experts alive today. The true experts are the old trappers and bushmen who knew the animal, who worked alongside of it and they knew its moods, what it got up to, how to even catch it in some cases. But today we don't, we don't know hardly anything about it. What mm. We can maybe guess we do, and there was so many people around that jump on this word expert and, oh, the feathers fluff up and they think, oh, I'm an expert. But they're only kidding themselves mm. because there are no experts. Well, and so It all happened so early in the, you know, in the 1900s that we, didn't, we don't have the knowledge even that, we have now or the technology or anything, so... Well, look, I spoke to Elias Churchill and several other fellows that hunted them actually mm. knew them. They were the experts. They, they knew what they were talking about. But now you get a scientist who jumps on the bandwagon and says, oh, I'm an expert, but they're not experts at all. And we've got even one particular scientist who said this animal couldn't kill anything bigger than a possum because its jaws are so weak. It's absolutely ridiculous. Look... This, this thing could bring down a sheep. Mm. Uh, a sheep was equivalent to the size of the thylacine. The, the sheep that came out here in those earlier days weren't quite as big as the sheep today. They were more in, in comparison with the size of a thylacine. And uh, it could certainly bring them down. Mm. But uh, now we've got a, a certain scientist, I won't mention names, saying, oh, no, their jaws are so weak, uh, we found out by... Uh, analysing this, this thylacine head that they've got there and the jaws are so weak they couldn't bring anything down big, anything bigger than a possum. Yeah. It's absolute nonsense. So you've got all the scientific community getting up and um, imagining all these marvellous things that the thylacine could or couldn't do, but they don't really know. And yeah. until we can get one and study it close hand, a live one, then we're not going to know. Yeah, I, I sit on the National Parks and Wildlife Advisory Council, um, which is a select group of people from the community who mm. advise on behalf of the, the pub, the general public, to mm. um, the heads of National Park. And yeah. one of the gentlemen, I, I won't mention names, but he is an incredibly well-known, um, slightly older gentleman who um, mm. works within the science community here in Tasmania. He's mm. won awards of Australia medals. Like he, he really is an amazing person. Mm. And I um, sort of poked him with my elbow the other day and said, guess who I'm going to be talking to? <laughs> and I told him um, that I was going to be talking to you about the thylacine on this podcast. And he mm. said to me, yeah, yeah I've seen them or had experiences four times. Um, and this is someone that I respect mm. endlessly with his knowledge. Um, so we're not just talking about sightings coming from tourists driving mm. their hire cars mm. over the West Coast Road. We're talking about scientists who have been out on expeditions and actually had their own encounters. Mm. So I guess kind of going forward... Um, what would happen if we were to have like a sighting that we could prove the Tasmanian tiger existed? What what do you think will happen if that? Well, look, the, the government is fearful of this, um, and um, there are people within government and within parks and wildlife who know they know it's there. Of course, they do. 
They know the tigerish this, but mainly because of the logging industry. They want to protect the logging. So it's a, a, a very big thing in this state, logging. And if the tiger was proven to be in an area, then the Greens would jump up and down and scream blue murder and want the whole state locked up. And that's what they're scared of. And so this, although they, they know the tiger is there, but they don't want it to release to the general public because they know the, the outcome, what the outcome would be. So there are certain people within government and within the parks and wildlife who know darn well it's there, but they shut their mouths and say nothing. And until it's proven to be there, they, they won't say a thing because they don't want the general public to know it because they, they're fearful of what's going to happen if, it, if it's proven to be there. So I've heard of them being shot uh, in the last 20 years and other people have heard of this too wow. uh, and, and hastily disposed of. I've heard of them being run over on the roads and hastily got rid of. And so these things do happen, but we're being kept in the dark about it. Uh, mainly for the reason, I think, for the logging, because that is a, a, a very important and viable part of the state, so many people imagine. And if you lost that, we would lose a lot. Mm. And so there are certain people who know it, and, uh, but I, I'm not a scientist and I'm not in the government, so I can say what I like, and they, they can't do anything to me, really. I mean, I'm entitled to say what I, I believe, but if I was in the government, I'd be told to shut my mouth. <laughs> And because I've, I've spoken to certain government ministers about this and they believe it's there and they're, they're out of government now, they're gone. But some years ago, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a general... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously needing to come to some conclusion in our discussion today, but you mentioned forestry. Um, there is a bit of a belief amongst those of us who do believe that forestry, farming and hydro potentially could have impacted the ability for the thylacine to still exist. Do you think that there's enough terrain left in Tasmania where we can have a viable breeding population or are the animals that we're seeing potentially older ones? Do we know how long the thylacine actually can last for? Well, maybe it's got a lifespan of 10 years in in the wild. Right. Uh, So similar to a devil. Well, the devil's only got five or six years, five so she's younger, much yeah. uh, But um, the devil is considered the apex carnivore now, where the, the tiger really still is, but of course it's not recognised as such. Um, look, um, that's, that's a curly one, really. Um, it's, it's a very different one to say. There's no proof uh, of anything at the moment. Um, so... Um, I guess you, you can't really say yes or no to, to the question. but mm-hmm. mm. if So I guess to start yeah, concluding, um, you've written the book mm. to help share your knowledge in the hope that some of us who read it will um, – potentially continue the legacy is that correct the continue Mm. the um not fight but the search to preserve the tasmanian tiger's habitat and potentially therefore the existence of the tasmanian tiger am i correct in saying that to some degree well most people would want to protect it i don't think there's there's only a very small percentage that would want to shoot it or harm it so most people uh, if they knew it was there they would be happy just to know that 
if it could be proven to be there, but of course it hasn't been proven to be there. And all the photographs in the world won't prove this because they can be so easily rigged and manipulated. So a library of dead one is the only way, and I'd much rather find a freshly dead one in the bush than a live one mm. because then uh, that would prove once and for all and, and uh, with a live one, you, well, you're not allowed to contain it, so the, the law tells us, or touch it or harm it in any way. So you just got to look at it and let it go, much like I did. Uh, but, a, but, a, but a dead specimen, that would prove beyond doubt a freshly dead one. And obviously um, roadkill is always sadly a potential here in Tasmania. I, I, um, what, one of the stories that blew me away in the book was actually um, the cycle tourists on Elephant Pass mm. over on the east coast coming yeah. down past the famous Elephant Pass pancake parlour. Mm. It's an area which has, you know, relatively dense um, farming and housing situation in amongst um, open and dense bushland, depending on where you are in that area. Mm. And they came across some roadkill that at the time they couldn't identify. They then um, went to visit the museum here in mm. Hobart mm. and right. mm. saw the tiger and just kind of randomly said, oh, that's what we that's what we think we saw is roadkill. Um, mm. The museum curator gave them a bit of a telling off and said that couldn't be possible. Mm. And then they bumped into you out at Mount Field when you were giving yeah. a, a talk. Yeah. What do you think that animal was? Could that potentially have been a tiger at Elephant Pass, which... Oh, but the way they described it definitely was. But wow. as I said, the front half was smashed and the back half had stripes on and a long, stiff tail. And the way they described it, there's no doubt and I've got no reason to, not to believe them. Wow. Um... People say, well, why doesn't the tiger get hit on the road? Because the tiger doesn't eat carrion. It's a simple answer to that. The devil will go onto the road deliberately to eat a dead uh, animal. Yeah, yeah, the tiger yeah. didn't do that. The tiger exactly. never ate carrion and only ever ate what it killed itself. Right. The old trappers were adamant on this. And they didn't touch poison poison meat. Uh, so uh, very unlikely they, they, they were poisoned. So... Um, this is probably the main explanation of why they don't get killed on roads because they cross the road but they never stop to eat carrion on the road and that's when these animals get killed. Yeah. Which is the devil. Yeah. And that makes sense. Mm. So what would be your message to us as, um, as Tasmanians, as listeners to this podcast further afield um, mm. going forward? Do you have a message for us? Well, if you're out in the bush and you're, you're fortunate enough to see a Tasmanian tiger or thylacine, leave it alone. Look at it. Get your photo if you're lucky enough to try, but don't go near it. Leave it alone. Let it go its way and don't tell the media. Mm. <laughs> Keep it to yourself and perhaps to your friends, but let a bit of time pass between when you've seen it and when you let it out, maybe a year or two. And I know it's, it's a hard thing to do for some people. They, they can't uh, wait to tell, tell everyone. But the worst thing you can do is go to the media because they sensationalise it so much and build it up to something that really isn't. And uh, a lot of it's nonsense they put in there anyway, but it's happened before and um, the moment they get hold of it, it's on, you know, like the things that are happening in South Australia at the moment. And I know that the fellow that's um, pushing all this, these things over there and, and he's out to make a bit of a name for himself. He likes publicity. And it makes good good newspaper stuff, but mm. I'd say leave it, leave it, leave it go, leave it be. Consider yourself really, really fortunate that you've been lucky enough to see it, but don't try and harm the animal in any way. Just let it go and 
forget about it for a, for a while. <laughs> I know it's easy. For easy 17 to say years that. and then write a yes, book. <laughs> but be very, very thankful yeah. that you've seen it and happy that it's still there. Yeah. Um, Are you happy for us if we were to have our own experiences to continue to write to you? Hmm. Are you, do as long you, as I'm here, yes. <laughs> yeah. And what what is your greatest fear? I mean, you always, like I say, you that the officialdom will get hold of this and ruin it. The government ruin, has ruined many things. They got hold of them and taken over and absolutely ruined them. And this is one animal they could ruin because so little is known about it. And the, as I say, the so-called experts will come into it and I can imagine this, and then they say, oh, we'll do this and we'll do that, and uh, they may kill the thing off very quickly. Mm-hmm. And we've got Mike Archie who wants to clone it. <laughs> he wants to, you know, uh, not clone it, he wants to... Uh, recreate, recreate it. Recreate it, yeah. <laughs> I know Mike well, and I've said to him, Mike, it's, <laughs> this is ahead of its time. It may, it may happen in 50 years' time, but just at the moment, what are you going to do when you find it? He said, oh, we'll let it in the bush, but... Here you've got an animal, he, he doesn't know how, even how to look after itself in the bush. And then if someone doesn't come along and shoot it, it'll die of, of starvation because it, it's lost the ability to hunt. It's, you know, so there's no, no, easy question, no easy answer to this question. But um, if it is still out there, and, and I believe it is, and it's hanging on, then it's done through its own uh, initiative. Mm. And, and uh, you know, why, why, uh, why mess with that? Why mess a good thing up yeah. and let it go? Nature is a very um, mm. amazing thing, way smarter than I think we, we are. I mean, I loved, I used to work as a, a hiking guide at Mariah Island mm. and there's a story about when the island was created that um, we had sadly another animal that was extinct in Tasmania called the um, Tasmanian pygmy emu, like a really, mm. really small, almost like the size of a chicken. Yeah. Um, mm. When the island was created as a national park, some someone, I don't know who it was, thought that it would be... Um, the opportunity to bring or to try and recreate the pygmy emu. So they went to the mainland and they found the smallest of the large mainland emus and popped mm. them on this island off the east coast of Tasmania where mm. all to, left all to themselves, they blossomed and turned mm. into these ginormous mainland <laughs> emus that uh. ended up being culled because they caused so many problems. Was that Mariah Island? Mariah Island. Yeah, right. So I think nature um, can outwit us in many ways. But, um, mm. yeah. Look, today um, was only a snapshot of your knowledge, your experiences out in the wild um, and with the Tasmanian thylacine. Um, I can't encourage people enough to read your books. I can't wait to read Lure of the Thylacine, which is your newer book Mm. um, recently released. And then you mentioned you're writing another book at the moment. Mm. And can you tell us a tiny bit more about that book? Well, it's the mystery of the thylacine. <clears throat> there's a, a huge mystery surrounds this animal right from the very earliest days to the present. And I want to try and um, get hold of it a bit and uh, explain it. Uh, and it's not an easy book to write, and providing I live long enough to finish it, it, it uh, people are on to me already, you know, when is it going to be finished? But <clears throat> it's not that simple when you're writing a book of this nature. You've got so much research mm. to do, and I've been researching it for, for over 12 months now, and I'm... I'm nowhere. <laughs> I'm still getting, you know, looking into things, getting ideas and stuff. So I know that the direction I want it to follow is uh, to try and uh, reveal the mystery. Uh, and it is a mystery. Uh, even today, um, it's as big a mystery as it ever was. Mm. And will it ever be solved? But, 
And anyway, it's got to be something a little bit different <laughs> to, to the last two books. Mm. And uh, so... Uh, well, Cole, mm. I, on behalf, I hope, of the Tasmanian public and the mm. broader audience listening to this podcast, I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge, um, your beautiful way of writing, which inspires me as I sort of dream about writing a book one day. Mm. Um, I want to thank you for your humility and humbleness because thank it you. speaks very loudly and, and something that I really respect. Um, mm. And I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk with us on our podcast because I really hope that your message um, is shared and spread Mm. (laughs) Uh, and that together we can help to preserve what we hope is the thylacine living here in Tasmania to this day. Mm. Thank you, Annie. Thank you, Cole.